Good morning. I made that soundtrack myself, so just so, just so you're wondering. Great to see you all this morning. My name is Greg Paris. We're so thrilled that you've joined us on campus today. If you're joining us online, we're uh, so uh, thrilled that you've joined us as well. Thank you for being here. Today we pick up the story. And just before we uh, get into the New Testament, let me just uh, mark a couple of historic events. Of course, today is 9-11, 21st year anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Uh, if you are under 30 years of age, uh, this may come as news to you. You're almost out of touch with this whole thing. But 9-11 uh, reminded us uh, who were alive and living adult lives at that time that there is evil in the world. Sometimes it masquerades in religious form, but it's evil nonetheless. Four planes were hijacked, commercial planes in the United States here, three of which crashed into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. One crashed in a field in Pennsylvania due to the heroism of those other people on board who took control of the plane away from the hijackers. And it's a uh, very dramatic story. All of us who were alive and well at the time have stories to tell about 9-11. It touched Muncie, Indiana, Union Chapel. Chrissy Bright was on our team, uh, served on our staff for over 20 years, her husband Jeff. Jeff's brother, Gary, was in the North Tower. We think uh, probably within a floor or two of the, of the impact of the airliner. None of Gary's remains were ever found, uh, and yet we held his memorial service right here at Union Chapel. So a poignant reminder to all of us of the, uh, of the grief that so many people suffered after more than 3,000 people were killed. Also this past week, you're all aware now of the passing of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Queen Elizabeth served reign for 70 years in Great Britain, um, part of a monarchy there. And we can say about Queen Elizabeth that she was a good person and there, we'll never see another person like her under those circumstances in our world, uh, dutiful, uh, a, a real servant, gave her life to, uh, to care for others in a meaningful way, and always seemed to have the right decorum and a meaningful faith. And so we wish her Godspeed. Uh, today we pick up the, the story. Let me just uh, bring us up to speed. Can I do that? Remember, the Bible has five basic movements. The whole purpose of the story is to follow the biblical narrative in chronological order. And these five movements, and let me rehearse the movements. First of all, we have people in a garden, the Garden of Eden. It's a paradise. Men and women have been created in the image and likeness of God, the apple of God's eye, the pinnacle of God's created order are human beings, you and me. And God's ultimate vision for the world, the reason for this creation, was so he can spend eternity in intimate, personal, close fellowship with all of us. He loves us, and he wants to be with us. That's his mission. That was the goal. Adam and Eve rejected God's vision. Sin entered the world. The fall came, then the flood of judgment, and then the Tower of Babel. And God came up with this next plan. Well, in order to establish my plan, my mission, fulfill that mission, I'm going to establish a people. It's called the nation of Israel. This was the second major movement in the Bible. God called a guy named Abraham, and this family began to grow into a nation. 
The nation had to be preserved through a guy named Joseph in Egypt, then delivered out of Egypt through a guy named Moses, and then Joshua led them into the land of promise. And beyond that, then we had a period of the judges, hundreds of years, then a period of the kings, hundreds of years, the kingdom divides, and we have a period of 400 years now between Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, and the New Testament. And so we've arrived now to the third major movement. First, there's paradise, then the nation of Israel, then the third movement is the life of Jesus. And we're going to, for the next handful of weeks, study the Gospels in the New Testament. And then the, the fourth movement is the church. This is the New Testament church and the church of Jesus Christ in the world. And then the last movement, the fifth movement, is back to a place called paradise. God calls it the eternal kingdom of heaven where God will once and for all fulfill the mission and vision that he has for us, which is to spend eternity lavishing his grace and mercy on us forever and ever. Amen. So today we pick up the story uh, in the New Testament. The title of this message is The Word Became Flesh. Very important concept. A few years ago, Beth and I were visiting friends in North Carolina, and we decided to visit the Biltmore Estate in Asheville. I know many of you have seen the Biltmore. It was constructed between 1888 and 1895. George Washington Vanderbilt was the original owner. His estimated worth in 1888 was $200 million. That translates to somewhere between six and seven billion in today's, today's dollars. The house uh, is 178,926 square feet. To give some perspective to that, uh, the Union Chapel campus is on 40 acres, and we have approximately 100,000 square feet under roof, all, all of our buildings, 100,000 square feet. The Biltmore Estate is almost twice as big as our campus. It's on six levels. It's, um, it's uh, equipped with six floors. There's a 70,000-gallon indoor swimming pool, elevators, an intercom system, and built originally on 125,000 acres. If you stand on the back uh, mezzanine and look and look out that direction, you'll see in the in the in the distant a mountain there in North Carolina. It's 20 miles to that mountain from the from the back porch, and and uh, and Mr. Vanderbilt owned all of the property between the house and the mountain. It was a, it was a big estate. William Cecil owns the estate today. The, the, the Vanderbilts lived in the house until the 1950s. William Cecil owns the estate today. His son, Bill Jr., and daughter, Diana, run the company that manages the property now. It has scaled down to only 8,000 acres. You uh, wear earphones and listen to a pre-recorded voices as you go from room to room on the tour. Diana, one of the owners, reminisced at one point, as I recall listening, about a favorite childhood memory of hers, she and her brother, Bill, would play hide-and-go-seek. Can you imagine? Okay, it's Tuesday, it's your turn. <laughs> Count to 100 and then try to find me. 250 rooms, I mean, it's, it's wild. I mean, you can only play one game a, a day or maybe one game a week, you never find, find the other person. Most people, listen to me now, most people assume this is the way God operates. Here's what I mean. That he is some mysterious being in some form out there somewhere. 
and we are left to our imagination or speculation or our best guess as to whether he exists and what he might be like. So God creates the earth, puts us on it, and then says to us, okay, count to 100, try to find me. Listen to me very carefully. This is not the way God works. Not even close. Just the opposite is true. If you think that's the way God is trying to hide himself from you in this world, then this message is going to be very helpful to you. Let me tell you the truth. God is constantly revealing himself to us through a thousand different ways. Sometimes in a special moment, sometimes in the natural order, sometimes uh, when a relationship just comes together in a beautiful way, you see a miracle happen. You, there's a thousand ways that God communicates to us all of the time. The birth of a baby, you say, that's a miracle. And you're right. It's an amazing thing. And so, so God's speaking to us. But God is constantly revealing himself to us through his word. Let me explain. When we speak, for example, we always reveal something about ourselves. I mean, when people talk, you learn about them. Now, some of you are rehearsing what you said in the last few days, and you're going, oh, no, shoot. But out of, out of your heart, your mouth will speak. This is what Jesus said in Luke 6. He said, a good man, man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And so we get, we get that understanding. The story, which we've been learning about, is God expressing himself over and over again, reminding us about how important we are to him. God created human beings, Adam and Eve, the original ones, to be in this intimate fellowship. He said, okay, that didn't work out, and so I'm going to create a whole nation of people who will model for the rest of the world what it looks like to be in relationship with me. And when that didn't work out, he had to send his only son in order to clear the way, constantly speaking to us along the way. In Genesis chapter 15, it says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. In Numbers 3, it says the word of the Lord came to Moses. In Joshua 8, the word of the Lord came to Joshua. In 1 Samuel 15, to Samuel. 1 Kings 6, to Solomon. 1 Kings 18, to Elijah. Psalm 18, to David. Psalm 38, to Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Ezekiel 6, watch this. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel said. And that exact phrase occurs 53 times in the book of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. God is constantly speaking to us and revealing himself to us. All the way to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, the word of the Lord came to Malachi. Now we come to the New Testament. And in Luke's gospel chapter 1, we find a priest, a priest of God of Israel named Zechariah, He's in the temple doing his priestly duties, and God tells him, the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, and God tells him that his barren wife, Elizabeth, is going to give birth to a son, and that they should call him John. Now, this baby that's going to be born named John becomes John the Baptist. So John Baptist is born to older parents who haven't been able to conceive. And Zechariah is blown away by this, by this word that comes from God. And he says, okay, well, what's the proof? Give me a sign. God says, I'll give you a sign. You're going to be d dumb and unable to speak. 
until the baby's born. And you go, what is the matter with Zechariah? I mean, you know, what is it with us? You know, give us a sign. Give me a sign, God. <laughs> All of us are asking for that. But this isn't a bad sequence for us to follow in Zechariah's case because when God speaks, we ought to be silent after that. His voice is louder, it's better, it's greater, stronger, more clarion than any other voice. May the Lord speak then and let his people be silent before him. Amen. That's where many men goes. Now, later in Luke, we have another word. This time, it's a word for a, young, for a young peasant girl named Mary. This young virgin is told she will bear the Son of God into the world. Important word, I would say. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, apparently Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, aged but now pregnant, is a cousin or a relative of Mary. And she's going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. For no word from God will ever fail. For no word from God will ever fail. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank. And Mary answered, may it done, be, be done unto me according to your word. So the New Testament begins with these four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three are called synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason they're labeled synoptic by the scholars is because they are similar. They summarize the life of Jesus. They are similar that way. It's a synopsis of the life of Jesus. And they are more linear, more historical, more chronological. They want you to know the historical facts, you know, beginning with the genealogy or the birth of Jesus and working through his life. John's gospel is a different approach. His style is unique. He wants you to know the meaning behind the events. The first three gospels give you the historic narrative and the events that occur. And John wants you to know what those events are and the meaning behind those events. It's very important. And so when people ask me from time to time, I want to start reading the Bible, where should I start? I always tell them, start in the Gospel of John. In fact, I say, read the Gospel of John, and once you finish the Gospel of John, go back and start over and read it again, and then read it a third time. Because along the way, you're not only going to understand what happened, but you're going to understand why it happened, the meaning behind it. And so that's what I recommend. Now look on the screen at John's Gospel now, chapter 1. This is the first four verses. In the beginning was the Word. There's the Word again. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now John is clarifying for us what he means when he says the Word. He's describing a person. And now he was with God in the beginning. Through him... All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that light, life was the light of all mankind. So here's John. He's giving us a definition of what he describes first as the word. And the word is a person. And this person was with God, and this person is God. And this person is creator God. There's nothing created that's ever been created apart from him. And so we learn a lot about the word, this person. 
Now, if you jump to verse 14 of John chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, this is a revelation. This is really important. This is a, this is a big deal that Almighty God, he's not playing a game of hide and seek. He's not saying, you know, I'm up here, you're down there, try to find me. God Almighty puts on an earth suit and the word became flesh. We know what that means. We all live in a body, a fleshly body. We get it. We understand it. We understand it perfectly. And this is precisely why God chose to become a person so that we could identify with him, understand him, and see him clearly. God, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, is totally transparent before us. Jesus actually used the words, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God is in, on full display. So God has come in the flesh, and he is on a mission. He has revealed a very distinct mission. He has come into the world, and he is full of grace and truth. Now, here's my first point. I only have two. Here's the first one. Jesus came to show us the truth, to show us the truth. And truth here is more than just actual reporting about particular facts or skills or something like that. Truth here is actually defined as ultimate reality. What is ultimately true? What is essentially true? What is quintessentially true? This is the truth that God has revealed in his son. Truth is ultimate reality. Here's how Jesus said it. This is John's gospel, chapter 14, verse 6. Someone asked him, what is the truth? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate. You may recall this. This is the night of the trial. And Pilate says to Jesus, they say you are a king. You can probably hear a, a note of sarcasm there. And Jesus responded, you say I am a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So Jesus is the truth that pertains to all of life. Now, th now th this is so important. Life so easily becomes about the here and now. We, we are so easily distracted, so, so easily allured by the world, the physical world around us. We even give it a number. It's the year 2022. Where are we in the world, the year 2022? And it so easily then can become about the house we live in, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, the assets we accumulate. And it becomes so consuming that we begin to think that this is all there is. This is all the life that's available. This is, this is the beginning and the end of it. And so we should just grab for it. But when we consult with Jesus about these things, he reminds us that this isn't all there is. There's another life that's more rich, more full, more perfect than this life. That, and, and so great that it's beyond anything that we can even imagine or think. And it's made possible by his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. So the truth is, the truth is that we are just passing through this life. We are, as believers in Christ, aliens. We are, we are strangers in this life. We are only passing through, and the promise is that the best is yet to come. And that's where the hallelujah goes in the sermon. 
I'll do it all if I have to. I'm used to it. So Jesus came to show us the truth. Now, the second thing is that Jesus came to show us grace. Look on the screen at John chapter 1, again, verses 15 and following. And John the Apostle writes, John testified concerning him. This, he's referring now to John Baptist. John Baptist testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So then John continues, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Now let's pause right there for a moment. He said there's grace that's exceeding grace in the place of grace already given. So apparently there's two expressions of grace. The first expression he's referring to is the law of Moses. The law of Moses, as you may recall, was the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt do these things in your relationship with God. Thou shalt not do these things, avoid these things in life. And then there's 600 other rules that come with the Mosaic law. And, and the law's mission was to simply reveal to us that we can't possibly keep the rules. The law acted as a mirror, if you will. And you look in the mirror and what do you see? You see a person who needs someone besides themselves to help them because there's no way we can keep the law. There's just too many rules. And, and Jesus said it this way, if you violate one of the laws, there's over 600 of them, you violate one of them, you violate them all. Oh, shoot, I'm guilty of all the law all the time. And so it's just a reminder. It's a revelation of the problem. But the Old Testament law didn't give us the solution, just the problem. The problem is that we have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious ideal for our lives, and therefore we are separated by that sin and we cannot fulfill the mission and vision of God has for us to live with him forever. So the law is just a reminder of our need. That was the first grace. I mean, it's good to know where you stand. That's gracious of God to allow us to know. But now John suggests there's another grace uh, in place of grace already given. And then he explains, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. And so now we're getting insight. Grace is the very opposite of merit. Follow me now if you can. Grace is not only undeserved favor, it is favor shown to the one who has deserved the very opposite. What you and I have deserved because of our sinfulness is judgment and wrath separation from God. That's what we deserve. But grace is not only undeserved favor, but it's favor shown to people who deserve it the least. That's you and me. So grace is unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor of God. I love this story. C.S. Lewis, my favorite Christian author of another generation, was asked to sit on a panel of experts from various religious groups in a conference years ago. Lewis had dismissed himself a few minutes when the question was asked, what makes your religion unique compared to all the other religions? And a robust debate developed among the panelists from these various religions. Finally, C.S. Lewis re-entered re the room and was asked the question, what makes Christianity unique among all the other religions of the world? And Lewis is just literally casually coming back into the room and sitting down when he hears the question. And as he sits down, he responded, oh, that's easy, he said, it's grace. It's grace. 
and the grace extended to us is a greater grace because it is a grace that saves. Doesn't just list the problem, but provides a solution. Can you feel that? The grace that accompanied the law had the power to expose the problem of sin, but it did not ultimately provide the solution for sin. The grace of God offered through Jesus Christ, the Bible declares, can save you to the uttermost, can save you from your sins now, save you from the pitfalls of life in the future, and save you eternally in heaven, can save to the uttermost. It's the grace that saves us. Wonderful. Have you ever been in an argument when someone says, do you know what your problem is? (laughs) Have you ever said it in an argument? Let me tell you what your problem is. I asked Beth about that. I said, I can remember maybe saying that twice. She said, oh, brother. (laughs) Apparently, it it slipped my memory. (laughs) We've all been in this moment, haven't we? You know what your problem is? But here's the problem with that argument. Unfortunately, in that kind of setting, you only find out the problem. You never find the solution. Jesus came on the scene of history and said to all of us, you and I both know what your problem is. You and I both know. And I'm going to save you from it because I'm on mission. I'm here on purpose. I'm not here by accident. You think I put on this earth suit just to, you know, enjoy, enjoy the beach? I'm here on a mission. I'm here to save you. Good news. I'm here to rescue you. Good news. I'm here to separate you from the sin that divides you from God and his plan, his mission for your life. I'm here with the answer. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, talking about the devil, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2. Now verses 4 to 10 in Ephesians 2. Look on the screen with me. But because of his great love for us, don't go by that quickly. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, everyone say mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Do you hear the gospel? Do you hear the good news? Do you you hear the glorious hope found in the grace of God? Amazing grace. Wonderful. I'm in that phase of life now when people are regularly asking me how I followed Jesus for over 50 years. How do you do that? Virtually all of the invitations I get now that I don't produce myself in my own meetings (laughs) are from people asking me to come and talk to younger pastors about how do you do that for such a long time? 
It's an interesting phase. A few years ago, maybe more than a few, I took several months and I asked myself who, who I think I am in the world. I wanted to remind myself who I am, my personality, my gifts, my, my capacity in the world. And I wrote that stuff down. And then I asked I ask the question, how do I want to apply who I best understand myself to be in the economy of God, the call of God in my life? How do I want to employ myself all the way to the finish line? And so what I did was, was I, I asked myself what my primary passions are, and I came up with four. And I also asked myself my, my four priorities. And then the last thing I did, and this was just on one sheet of paper, is things I want to do before I die. And I just put a bucket list together. Let me just share with you briefly the four passions that I have personally in my life. One is orthodoxy. When I say orthodoxy, it's just a theological word that means that I believe the Bible to be true. Orth, ortho means straight, you know, so straight doctrine. I, I, I believe the Bible. I believe in the faith once delivered from the, aposto- the apostles of the New Testament. The apostles are these guys that hung out with Jesus. They saw him. They heard him. They watched him. They have a record. I believe their record. I believe the Bible true. I believe, I believe it's true for what we believe and how we practice our lives. So I want to be orthodox in my faith. The second passion I have is evangelism. I think people need to have an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And they need to hear the gospel clearly presented so that they can decide for themselves whether they want to follow Jesus. That's what evangelism is. I'm passionate about that. The third thing I'm passionate about is the Great Commission. I believe everybody ought to hear about Jesus. And Jesus said it in a Great Commission. He said, go into all the world, make disciples, preach the gospel, and make disciples. And I believe, I believe in doing that, engaging in that. And that's why we're, we go all over the world helping people find Jesus. Someone said it this way, why should you have the right to hear the gospel once? I'm sorry. Why should you have the right to hear the gospel twice until everyone has had a chance to hear it one time? I think that's a fair question. Of course, in America, we get to hear the gospel every day. We hear the gospel every day. And there are places in the world where people have never heard about Jesus. And people have a right to hear. And somebody's got to go and tell them. And so I'm passionate about that. The fourth thing I'm passionate about are people who live on the margins. Jesus said... To the, if, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. That's why we engage in all kinds of service projects. We, f- we feed the hungry. Uh, we, we support pregnancy care centers. We build recovery homes. This is, this is what we do to minister to those most in need around us. My four priorities are very straightforward as well. I want to lead faithfully. As long as I'm in leadership, I want to lead faithfully. That's, my, that's the word I, I, I worked on. I want, I want to be faithful as a leader. The second thing is I want to preach, now here's my descriptive term, passionately. I want to preach passionately. I don't want to, I've got a handful of people that I've designated in my life whom I love and trust, including my wife, whom I love and trust. I love and trust these people, and I've given them the commission that when it's time that they will put the hook in me and pull me away. <laughs> there he goes. I don't, I don't want to be that guy. 
who, you know, overstays. Like maybe right now. <laughs> I, I, I can't trust myself to know, so I have people who are going to help me. Preach passionately. Then I want to champion the next generation. It's a priority. I want to I pour into, I want to bless the next generation. This is the obligation of every Christian. As you walk with Jesus for a while, you got to find someone who's a few steps behind you and help them. This is the mandate. This is what, this is what we do. And so I want to champion the next generation. And then finally, I want to finish well. And you say, well, yeah, everybody wants to finish well. And you've heard me muse about this from time to time. It's not easy to finish well. And what I'm discovering is that the older I become, the more I realize how hard it is to finish well. You would think the older you are and you're more set in your ways and you've got your discipline set and you've got your convictions in place and you know what you believe and you know which direction you're going, that it ought to be easy. Just, you know, just hang on and you'll, you get to the tape leaning forward. No. Just the opposite is true. The older you get, the more distracted you become. And the, more, and the easier it is to, is, to, is to drop the ball. I'm talking to people right now, certainly within the sound of my voice, that you're still viable. You're still alive. You're viable. Listen, your age, listen, is just a number. has nothing whatsoever to do with God's will in your life, your age. And so you, at some point, you believe the lie. You drop the ball. And now years are going by. You're still viable. You're still vital. You still got the right stuff. But you drop the ball. Pick up the ball. Carry it all the way to the line. Did you know very few people finish well? Very few. Even the characters in the Bible whom you admire and try to pattern your life after, leaders in the scripture that you think are just really admirable, most of them did not finish well. It's about a 70% didn't finish well to 30% of the biblical leaders who did. So it must be hard to do. And I'm telling you, it's hard. But it's one of my priorities to finish well. And so people then at this stage of my life are asking, what's your motivation? Why do you, why do you stay engaged like this? Why are you, you don't have to do this. What, what, what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. I can't get over it. I can't get past what Jesus has done for me. I just can't. I can't dismiss it from the way I think or from what motivates me or the actions I take. I can't divorce myself from Jesus. I just can't get over it, can't get past it, can't get around it. I, I'm determined to serve him. He's worthy. The lamb must receive the reward of his suffering. What he has done for us in this amazing expression of his love and mercy and grace, when we didn't deserve it, he did it. He made a way for us. I'm not upset that there aren't 50 ways to God. I'm just so thankful that God has made a way through the cross. I can't get past it. Can't get over it. So as long as I'm here, I'm in that business. I'm following that person. I live to honor him. So how do, how do we respond to this? What do we do when we realize this amazing good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's made our salvation available through his grace? What do we do? We know exactly what to do. John helps us again. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. 
Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? What do we do? We believe and we receive him. We receive the gift of salvation he offers. One more story. John Newton was born in England in 1725. He was born to Christian parents. Prior to the age of six, John Newton's parents would teach him scriptures that they would memorize and help him learn. When he was six years old, both of his parents died. And he was sent to live with a relative who was not a Christian. Christianity was ridiculed in his presence. And John was habitually, physically, and verbally abused. When John was old enough, he ran away. He joined the British Navy. While in the Navy, he determined to indulge himself in every possible sin, his words. The Navy was not satisfying, so he deserted the British Navy. And he went to Africa, and I quote, to sin my fill. Boy, was determined. In Africa, John met, met a Portuguese slave trader, went to work for him. He was treated horribly by, by the slave trader and at the first chance escaped to the west coast of Africa. There, because of his sailing background, he was hired onto the crew of a slave ship. This was also a horrible existence where John sunk again to the depths of sin. From his own biography, he said one day he broke into the ship's supply of rum and got so drunk that he fell overboard. He would have drowned if not for an officer on board who saved him by thrusting a harpoon into his thigh and dragging him back on board. Listen, if you ever see me in a similar predicament, just let me drown. Man, no. One day near Scotland, a storm came up and threatened all the lives on board. The captain sent John to the bowels of the ship to run the pumps. When John realized it was a losing battle and everyone was likely to perish, he began to recall Bible verses his parents had taught him before the age of six. Isn't that interesting? And John Newton, this tough, sinful, rugged man, started, started to cry. He cried out to God in the bottom of that slave ship, in the middle of a storm. His prayer, just three words. God, save me. God, save me. Let me tell you what happens when someone sincerely prays that prayer. God always hears it. God always answers that prayer. To John Newton's surprise, he survived the storm. He left the slave trade, returned to England. He went back to school and became a preacher of the gospel. He also became an abolitionist and actually saw the end of England's slave trade just months before his death in 1807. At one point in his life, he stood before the Queen of England, preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Inspired by Newton, in 1773, William Cowper wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Here's the words of the first verse. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. John Newton also wrote a number of hymns, including one you may be familiar with. It's entitled, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. The truth of Jesus Christ and his grace is amazing and free for all. Whosoever will may come to receive him and believe in his name and therefore become part of his family. Can I encourage you to pray just for a moment? Lord, we thank you for this amazing story and for your words which help us to know you. And I pray for anyone within the sound of my voice today who does not know you, that the simple step of believing and receiving can be prayed in three words. God save me. God save me. God save me. Now if you pray that prayer today, God will hear you. And you'll receive the grace to be saved. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?